0: Stories are powerful. We remember stories more than anything else. If I were to ask you how many of you remember my sermons, very few would. But if I were to ask you how many of you remember my stories, you can still quote to me the stories I shared from 10 years back. If I were to mention the story of the tortoise and the hare, the turtle and the rabbit, you don't need me to tell you the full story you can tell me the moral lesson that that story brings. If I were to mention to you the story of Romeo and Juliet, without mentioning the entire story, you would already know it is a story of two lovers, a picture of deep but tragic love. Even in our generation today, that's why a lot of us love comic books. If I were to mention to you about Superman and ask you what his mortal enemy in the form of a mineral was, you could all tell me, kryptonite. Stories are powerful. They leave an indelible mark in our mind. Jesus Christ, as a son of God, God himself, was for all intent and purpose the greatest teacher that ever walked this earth. He was the master teacher. And having created us, he knew that people remember deeply when they hear stories And so often in his teachings, Jesus used stories to help the people that he spoke to remember spiritual principles or to reveal something about God. And we call these stories of Jesus parables because these parables teach us important life lessons. And so we begin a new sermon series in this new year looking at some of the parables of Jesus to learn the important life lessons he wants us as his disciples to live out. Many of the parables you already know, stories of the prodigal son, the parable of the good Samaritan, but there will be parables that perhaps you are unfamiliar with, like the one we're going to take a look at this morning, the parable of the shrewd servant. Now this sermon series will not cover all the parables of Jesus. There are too many. We're going to cover a few, and We're not going to repeat those that I've already preached on, like the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we're going to be primarily looking at Jesus' parables as recorded in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. And so we begin. Turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Luke, where you're going to take a look at chapter 16, verses 1 to 13. Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 13, as we study the parable of the shrewd servant. As many of you have begun this year, you have made many plans. We call them resolutions. Some of us plan to sleep more. Some of us plan to eat healthier. Some of us plan, perhaps, to read more books. Some plan to better themselves. Others plan for their vacations. For those who are more future-looking, you plan to better equip yourself by taking classes or going for further studies to make yourself more marketable. Some of you plan to make a lot more money and perhaps to more wisely invest so that when times of economic uncertainty comes you will be ready for others you are planning for your retirement calculating the rate of inflation to ensure that when you retire the interest generated from what you've saved up will be able to carry you through others who are more future-looking, will plan for their children's education and set aside enough so that when their children go to college, there will be enough for them. I wonder, in all of this planning, has any of us planned for our spiritual lives? Have any of us planned for our eternity? And perhaps some of you may not feel compelled to plan as such, but there will come a time in your life when you will be forced to plan. Perhaps when you get sick or when you get older or when life forces you to retire, these life situations will force you to plan. And when that intersection in your life comes, when the time comes for you to plan, Jesus has some principles for how you can plan for a purposed life, a life lived for purpose, a life that will mean something with eternal values. And he will teach us these life lessons to plan for a purpose life through a parable. Let's take a look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 16. Look at me as I read. Jesus also said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, What is this I have heard about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. The story begins with a rich man who calls his trusted servant manager into his office to tell him that he's being fired. And he's being fired because there is an accusation of his mismanagement of some accounts that he held. And those accusations of, of mismanagement was grounds for termination. Now, I want to mention something as we study parables. Sometimes we read ourselves into these parables, and so we want to ask questions. Sometimes we look for information that is not overtly presented. I want to stress something. Parables are stories. Don't get too involved in the details or the lack of details and miss out the greater moral lesson that this story is bringing. Because some of you are are, are wondering... You're curious, how did this servant manager misuse funds? How did he mismanage? The Bible doesn't say. Jesus does not give this detail in his parable because it doesn't matter. Some of you, as you read verses 1 and 2, will stop and wonder, well, that's unfair. If I was the servant manager... I would bring my master to the department of labor. Imagine firing me for simply an accusation. That is not due process. Again, that is not the emphasis of the story, so it doesn't matter. And now some of you may be wondering, why isn't the master more kind and forgiving? Like the father was in the parable of the good Samaritan. Again, not the emphasis. Bottom line. Owner calls manager into his office to fire him because of mismanagement. Surprisingly, the manager is asked to close up the books that he was responsible for, to settle all outstanding accounts because he would no longer be employed by the company. Now, you may be sitting there putting yourselves in his shoes and saying, this is not true to life. My company is going to fire me. I'm just leaving. I'm not going to help my company anymore. Imagine clearing up the books. That's his problem now. Again, don't get involved into the details. We're simply told that that man agrees to clear up all of the outstanding debts that his account is handling. And he would close up the books before he left. Verse 3 and 4. Then the steward said within himself, What should I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I am ashamed to beg. And I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out to the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. The servant manager thinks to himself, What am I going to do? Perhaps he has not planned before, but now life circumstances has forced him to plan. He is too old. He believes he is physically unable to go back and do manual labor to earn money for his living. He has too much pride that in his older age, he's not going to resort to begging to live. What is he going to do? The stark realities of life circumstances causes him to begin to think and plan. It is the same case in our life. Sometimes when our safety net has been taken away, that we, at that moment, are thrust into a position of planning for contingencies. Suddenly, it's a wake-up call that we've got to accept that life has taken a turn. It's a wake-up call for those, perhaps many of us, who are coddled and who think that life will always be good. But God will allow circumstances and events in our lives to wake us up to our dependence on Him. A wake-up call to remind us that we won't live forever, that things in life do change, and that our lives are always in God's hands. This was something that happened in my life just a few weeks ago when doctors discovered a non-cancerous vocal cord polyp that has been affecting my voice And some of you have noticed my vocal quality degradation as I preach. This polyp will have to be surgically removed sometime this year. It's those moments of wake up that you begin to think, what happens if something goes wrong? My mind immediately went to Julie Andrews and the surgery she had. And that was a botched operation. And I began to think, what if I come through this process and... I can't speak anymore. I'm a preacher. I'm a teacher. I need my voice. And you you begin to think about these things. And you are woken up to the realities of the challenges of planning for contingencies. Anyway, this job termination is a wake-up call for this manager servant. And as he begins to frantically think about what he should do, he comes up with a brilliant idea an idea to leverage his last remaining advantage to put himself in a better position when he is fired. And the only leverage he had was that in his hand, he had a few accounts that still owed the company money. And he was in charge of settling these accounts. Look at his action plan in verses 5 to 7. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. So the servant manager calls all the debtors who owe the company money and seems to make a side deal with them. He says to one, you owe me 100 measures of oil, just settle for 50 and we'll call it a day. To another, he says, you owe the company 100 measures of wheat, let's settle for 80 and your debt is clear with this company. And presumably, he does this for all of the other outstanding balance. It is obvious that he is currying favor with these people. He is angling for a post-termination job perhaps with one of these clients of his that he had been kind to verse 4 tells us that this is part of his plan that they may note this in verse 4 they may receive him into their houses if I'm kind to them now they will be kind to me hopefully one of them when I don't have a job now let's stop here if I were to survey you this morning and ask you, how many of you think that what this servant manager is doing is wrong? I bet you 99% of you would raise your hand. You'd probably identify with him, but what he does is wrong. Because you're thinking his side deals are costing his manager, master owner money. But when we begin to think like that, then we are interpreting our experience into what the text does not say. That is something we're going to do. Let's cut some side deals. I'm going to be fired anyways. But there is another possibility. And the possibility is that he is giving up his commission for these accounts so that these debtors can pay their obligation and their accounts will be settled. It's a win-win. The company gets their money back. He loses his commission. But he is giving up his temporary gain... To gain future favors. Does that make sense? He is willing to give up a temporary loss to gain future favors. And this option seems to make more sense because, as we're going to read in verse 8, this shrewd servant is commended by the master. It would seem hardly right that Jesus is teaching that it's okay to correct one wrong with another wrong. Look at verse 8. So the master commended the unjust steward because he has dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. When the manager servant tells the master owner all that he has done to settle these accounts, presumably he has given up his commission and what is owed him, notice that the master gives him a commendation. And he says of this servant, you have dealt shrewdly. Now, we look at a word like shrewdly, and we think it gives off a negative connotation. But the word itself means wisely. You have dealt smartly. We are the ones who bring in the negative connotation. You have dealt wisely in this matter. Because you are willing to give up your own temporary gain, present gain, in order to gain something better in the future. And there is a comment by the Master. Jesus says... The sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. What he's saying is, the world is shrewd. The sons of this world means, and is referencing the unrighteous. And the unrighteous in this world are often crafty. They are smarter than the sons of light, referencing the righteous. We know this. We know that this is a cutthroat world. Everyone is looking for their own gain. Everyone is clever. Everyone is shrewd, trying to position up. But there is an implied expectation that the righteous also use wisdom, that we who are Christians use our brain, that we are also to be shrewd and clever in this world. You see, a lot of people have this notion that Christians should always be naive, that Christians should be taken advantage of, to be kicked around. The Bible never says that. In fact, Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, you know this verse. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as what? Serpents and harmless as doves. Jesus is teaching, this world is full of crafty people, shrewd people. Everyone's trying to level up. You Christians should be the same. You should use your brain, use cleverness and wisdom, planning a way where you can ensure that if you give up a temporary loss in the present, you will be able to gain future favors. You see, that's how the business world works you know it has been said that one must lose money first in order to make money. Every businessman, every businesswoman knows sometimes you must forego early wealth so that you can then sustain greater wealth. Why not in the spiritual things? Because this is what Jesus teaches. A giving up now so that you can gain something better later. That is... The commendation of Jesus for Christians who are shrewd and smart. Now, from this parable about planning, Jesus will draw out three principles for how we are to plan for a purposed life. Look at verse 9, the first lesson. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. Jesus will now give applications for his story, his parable, to his disciples, to us, his readers. Now, I know most of you know this, but for those of you who are new to us and don't understand why mammon is written here, it is not in reference to a local Filipino pastry. The word mammon, in some of your Bible translations, is a transliteration of the Aramaic word mamona, meaning something we trust, something we place our trust in, or it could simply be replaced by the word wealth. And I say to you, verse 9, make friends for yourself by unrighteous wealth. And unrighteous wealth or mammon simply means material wealth. It doesn't mean ill-gotten gains. It's just wealth that is material in contrast to heavenly wealth. So it's interesting. Jesus is telling us as readers and the disciples That we are to use our wealth and resources to make friends. And for what purpose? To establish relationships with them so that we can introduce Jesus Christ to them and hopefully they will accept. And if they accept, they will go to heaven. So that, as verse 9 says, when we die and those who have accepted Christ because of our ministry will welcome us into heaven if they die before us simply put jesus is telling us to use our monies and resources and time and everything else to lead people to jesus christ that is investing in eternity putting it all together number one plan wisely for eternity jesus is teaching us through this parable the life lesson To plan wisely for eternity. Just like this shrewd servant, when face to face with the realities of life being terminated from his job, he chooses to forego temporary pleasure and money in the present so that he can enjoy greater and more important things in the future. That should be a lesson for us. Many of us are earning money today so that we can go on vacation this year so that we can enjoy a good life in the next five years. And if I have anything left over, maybe I'll give it to the church. Or maybe I'll give it to the Lord's work. But how many of us are working hard with the intention of using our money and our resources and our time and our influence to lead men and women to Jesus Christ? We are to plan now, planning wisely for eternity because we know that we can't take anything with us when we die anyways. How many of us are using the resources that God has given us to make friends with the purpose of introducing them to Jesus Christ, not for your own benefit? Many of us make friends because we like to have lots of friends, or we make friends only because we believe we can use them in the future, some sort of strategic decision for our business. While those may be what the world does, I hope that when you make friends, it is with the deep innate desire that those who do not believe will come to know Jesus, and that is what makes life worth living. That's where you're going to find purpose in life, when you plan wisely for eternity. So it's okay to spend a little more in the present so that you can show the love of Christ to others. How do I apply that in my life? Whenever I'm out of town, I, of course, stay in a hotel. And in the hotel room, I often have my computer set up, and I'll have my Bible next to my computer. The reason the Bible is open is because I'm usually preparing for a message or doing my devotions. And then if I am to leave for the day, I don't hide my Bible. No one's going to steal my Bible. It's just open there. But I know that when I leave... The house cleaning crew is going to come, and they're going to clean my room. And they're going to see that there is a Bible there. And although they may not know that that Bible belongs to a pastor, I'm sure many in this world know that those who read the Bible or those who read the Bible for what it's worth are those actively wanting to seek out a life of Christ likeness. So as the house cleaning crew comes, they're going to make a judgment call. The one who stays in this room is a Christian. That's why I make sure, before I leave, I put on the pillow 100 pesos. Now, I don't know if that's a practice for any of you or many of you, but that's the universal hospitality uh, technique for saying that that's a tip for the house cleaning crew. Now, some of you may be surprised. You say, what? I want to give them more than 20 you are giving them a 100 pesos. That's $2. You must have a lot of money. Let me tell you what. That's harder than money. A 100 pesos is a lot of money, I know. And I think for most of us in our cultural context, we don't do this. But I want our house cleaning crew who's servicing my room that when they equate an opening of the Bible and they make a judgment call, that the one staying in that room is a Christian, that they understand that Christians are generous. Why? Not because I want them to have a good impression of Christians, but because that's what the Bible teaches. Let me ask you this. For some of you, a 100 pesos is very painful to part with. That's your present loss. You think, right now, of all the things you can buy for a hundred pesos. A cafe latte. A meal, perhaps. That's a lot of money. But I know our social economic crowd this morning. I know while it may have a temporary bit of pain to part with that, that hundred pesos out of your wallet is not going to affect your life in any way. Really? How many of you are worrying right now about 100 pesos? Probably very few of you. So it's a temporary loss that really doesn't mean anything to you. But let me tell you what. For one who's cleaning your room in the province, earning less than 400 pesos a day, they have received a quarter of a day's wage. It will make their day. Now that's for me. I'm not telling you what you need to do with your money. But I'm simply saying there are 101 ways for you to apply this principle. But that's a small way in how we can invest in eternity. That's why I've said it often. If you're going to pray and your server sees you pray before you eat, make sure you tip well. Because you're going to associate the generosity of a Christian with one who seemingly lives out their faith publicly. And in business, we know this concept. You need to spend money to make money. How many of you in your businesses, you give your suppliers gifts on Christmas and later on in Chinese New Year? Why do you do that? That's a loss. You do those things because you are hoping to curry favor that they will think kindly of you when they are looking for the next supplier. Well, that's the concept we practice today. Why does it not Extend into the Christian life. Whoever said the Bible wasn't practical, the Bible teaches this already. Invest wisely in eternity, deal with the loss today, so that you can gain something better in the future. Now, the second life lesson for planning a purpose life is in verses 10 to 12, Jesus' own words. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? From this parable, Jesus draws out the lesson of being faithful. He is teaching the importance of being trustworthy even in the small things. The man in the parable was not faithful. He was not trustworthy to the task that was given by his master and therefore was fired from his employment. And Jesus says in verse 10, "He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much." Want you listen carefully. Faithfulness, trustworthiness, does not depend on the type of work you are given. Faithfulness is not dependent upon the amount of work you are given. Faithfulness, trustworthiness, are issues of character. That's why the Bible in Jesus' parable does not give a reason for his firing. Because I know all of us, if there was a reason for his firing, we would all use that and side with the servant. Well, he was justified. The boss overworked him. Told him to work overtime without pay. Of course, he kept a little something on the side. It's okay. We've got this notion in our generation today. That we are to be faithful only in the things that we find worth doing we are only trustworthy in the things that we think that we are capable to do but we forget that these are issues of character not to be justified away faithfulness is not dependent on what you like to do or what you find satisfying or what you find easy faithfulness speaks of your character so number two, when you're planning to live a purpose life, number two, plan to be faithful and trustworthy. You can write these words in the margin, even in the small things. Plan to be faithful and trustworthy. How many of you in your resolutions this year have put faithfulness as one of the things you want to do? I want to hold to my commitments to the Lord. No, they're all resolutions that deal with some sort of action that results in a tangible, visible result. But to be faithful, what kind of planning is that? And yet the Bible tells us we are to be faithful. In fact, Jesus mentions that one's faithfulness in the earthly things of life will translate into his blessings in the future and how much responsibility he gives you in the eternal. Our faithfulness in the small things, even in this lifetime, will reverberate throughout eternity in how God blesses us and how he gives us responsibilities for eternity to come. This is an important lesson for our generation to understand. God will not be impressed with your resume of things accomplished for Him. Because the omnipotent God is not impressed by what you can do. Because He can do everything and anything. That's why... One of the greatest commendations when we see him face to face is those oft-used words of Jesus Christ, well done, good and faithful servant. Do you ever think about this? There is only but one criteria, one criteria that God judges our lives on in terms of his filters. He doesn't judge us on how many degrees we have. He doesn't judge us how large our company is. He doesn't judge us on how much wealth we've accumulated. He judges us based on our faithfulness to what he's given us, to the time he's given us, to the treasures he's given us, to the talents he's given us. And God looks at our faithfulness lived in this life and determines what we do for all eternity as he blesses us. We're the same way. Would you entrust your seven-year-old with 10 million pesos and say, son, walk around with this and protect it with your life. Spend as you will, but remember to be prudent. Of course not, because that seven-year-old has not proven himself. And so you begin to train that seven-year-old with a little bit of allowance. And you see whether he is prudent in how he spends his money. And as he is able to prove himself as he gets older, then you begin to entrust to him that which you value. So it is with God. God will look at how you manage your resources in this life. He will look at how you use your time. He will look whether you take the things of God seriously. And the Bible tells us in your planning towards faithfulness, he will then bless you. And our generation needs to hear this because our generation, young and old today, bails when we get bored. We commit to something, and what do we do? Well, I'm too busy now. Something bigger and better has come up. I'm going to do that thing. And we never live up to the commitments and the promises we make to God. Because we never plan to be faithful. We're only faithful when it's convenient for us. We're only faithful... When we want to do it. But when we don't, we make every justifiable reason in our mind why we don't have to continue with it. One criteria. Faithfulness. Will you plan to be faithful and trustworthy? You know, it's actually hard in this complex world. But the Lord calls us to do so. I wonder if any of you remember being back in elementary and the joy of what happens in elementary when your teacher leaves the room, right? If your teacher needs to go to the bathroom or goes to the teacher lounge to get something, uh, you're excited that the teacher leaves because now you can talk and mess around. But as my elementary teacher often admonished the class when she would leave for a few moments, she would warn us about the behavior she expected and the consequences for those who do not obey. And she would often never fail to say these words. And you Heard them before, I'm sure. While I'm gone, there will be no talking. I often found that statement funny, telling a bunch of elementary students that if she steps out, they're not to talk. They're elementary students, of course, they're going to talk once you step out. But to ensure that her instructions are followed, the teacher will often select a student who is trusted and empowers that student with the ultimate weapon to take down the names and write them on the board of those who talk. And whoever has this coveted position of taking names becomes the most powerful person in that class. I've never been asked to be the name taker. You shouldn't understand what type of student I was. And whoever's name appears on the board when the teacher comes back would lose privileges such as going to recess or get an infringement or have a demerit or whatever discipline plan the school has. But we all knew in the class that whenever the teacher picked his or her favorite student, that child was actually no better than the rest of us, right? But now they were the stewards with the power to punish. And the only way they would lose their power is if the teacher found out that they were not Trustworthy. How many of you knew some of these nametakers who would not write down the names of their friends, who talked, because they were their friends? How many of you know these nametakers who would write down the names of their enemies just because they were their enemies? And here's an opportunity to get them back. I've never been one of these name takers, but it always annoyed me when those name takers were not fair. If you were a name taker and you were tasked with that job by your teacher, how many of you would or did write down the names of your friends, your close friends, your best friends who defied the teacher's instructions and talked? How many of you, out of spite and out of frustration, wrote down the names of your enemies just for the slightest of giggles, just to get them back? If life was already complex and hard and elementary, how about today in the real world, the professional world that you live in? It is very hard to be faithful and trustworthy to the things of Scripture in this complex world. And yet that is the challenge. How many of you plan to be faithful? The third lesson, verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Here is the third principle from the parable. I'll give it to you now, number three. Plan to be loyal to only one master, the Lord God. Plan to be loyal to only one master, the Lord God. In this parable, the man was not only not faithful, but while he was being commended as being shrewd, you knew that his action was to serve himself not to his master, because if he was going to serve his master and loyal to the master, he wouldn't have mismanaged the account in the first place. That's why Jesus says quite clearly from this parable, you can't serve two masters. You have to pick one. Why is it important to be loyal to only one master? Because when that master is defined it will drive your life's purpose. It will drive your life's goal. You cannot love two things. You see, we have this impression that loyalty is based on degrees of love. And so we try to love God and we love the world, but as long as we love God more, then it's okay. Let me ask you this. If you go home and tell your wife you love her and that you're loyal to her 100%, and then she turns to you, And she says, well, what about your mistress? And then you answer, well, honey, don't worry about her. I love you more than her. I love you, wife more than the mistress. I'm loyal to you. You would be run out of the house. Loyalty is not about degrees of love, loving one more than the other. Look how the Bible defines it. Love for one hatred for another loyalty to one despising the other because unless you plan to be loyal to only one master you will always be torn in your decisions that you make in life Did you hear that unless you plan to be loyal every day you will struggle with the decision whether to follow god or follow the world You will be torn in what is of greater importance in your life. You will be torn in what takes greater priority in your life if you have not settled the basic question of being loyal to one. Because how you spend time, how you spend your resources, how you prioritize your life is a very clear indication of your loyalty and love to God. At this very moment, there is something very important happening on the other side of the world. At this moment, the Dallas Cowboys are playing in a playoff game. If they win today's game, they will make it to the conference final the first time in 24 years. The last time they were there, I was 17. I am very tempted right now to check my phone for the score. (laughs) I don't need you to text it to me up here. I will admit that when they won their game, there was a fleeting thought this week that perhaps I can take vacation today. I preach 36 weeks out of the year here at this church. The Cowboys make it to the playoff once every 24 years. It was a fleeting thought, but it was still a thought. But it was an easy decision because I was scheduled to share God's word this morning. But you've got to understand the culture that I grew up in where although you may find it ridiculous, sports was king. The American culture is a culture where sports takes precedence over everything else. Growing up in Texas, it was what they call football country. Friday was high school football. Saturday was college football. Sunday was professional football. And that was the weekend. And if it so happened that the Dallas Cowboys were scheduled to play an early game at 12 noon, it seriously affected church attendance. That's why if you go to churches in Texas during football season, you will find that they have set up large live screen LED TVs. Because if they happen to play the early game and the pastor goes long, they can at least rush out to the lobby and watch the game. Every pastor in Texas knows you cannot compete against the Dallas Cowboys. Now, to put it in your context, the Filipino equivalent is maybe a Pacquiao fight in Las Vegas where they fight on Saturday evening, which is Sunday morning. But I know our field tri congregation is too cheap to buy the pay-per-view, and so we all watch it for free in the afternoon. So that's fine. But how sad it is that a culture gets to a point where things that are seemingly inconsequential takes priority over the things that are of eternal value. And yet it does. And that is a microcosm of what happens to us when we do not plan to be loyal to only one master. The issue comes down to loyalty. If we are loyal to one master, then nothing in our schedule moves Period, end of story. And yet, it seems like everything on a Sunday morning often takes priority over the worship of God. You can try to serve two masters, but at the end, you will have to choose one over the other. And without an intentional plan, you will naturally pick the other. From an article Wayne Field contributes, he asks... Are we loyal to the one who redeemed us? I wonder what would happen if we applied the same standards of loyalty to our Christian activities that we expect from the other areas of our life. If your car starts once every three tries, is it still reliable? If the postman skips delivery every Monday and Thursday, is he still trustworthy? If you don't go to work once or twice a month, are you a reliable employee? If your refrigerator stops working for a day or two every now and then, do you say, oh, well, at least my refrigerator works most of the time? If your water heater provides an icy cold shower every now and then, is your water heater dependable? If you skip a couple of electricity bill payments, do you think the power company would even mind? If you fail to worship God one or two weekends a month, would you still be expected to be called a faithful Christian? We expect loyalty and reliability from things and other people. Isn't it reasonable then that God just might expect the same from us? Plan to be loyal to only one master. Lisa Bradner of Forster Research writes these words, true loyalty is ultimately about a relationship. It's easier to build a relationship with someone than it is with something. Starbucks Corporation knows this. Starbucks is a huge employee training program. They invest in their employees where they make sure it is a very positive experience because they know you will love your barista. But if your barista leaves, he or she must be replaced by someone that is equally warm and friendly because Starbucks knows loyalty is ultimately about someone. God who created us knew this before Starbucks. And that's why he tells us no servant can serve two masters. A lasting loyalty to God is not loyalty, listen carefully, not to a church. Lasting loyalty to God is not loyalty to a pastor. It's not loyalty to an environment. It's not loyalty to a program that you like. It is loyalty to the person of Jesus Christ Because if your loyalty is based solely on your experience or on a person other than Christ, they will fail you. But if your loyalty is foundation upon a relationship with Jesus Christ, you can be assured that you are following one who will never fail you. So the choice is yours. Plan to be loyal to only one master and make sure that Master is the Lord God. I hope you are planning for a purposed life. When you do so, plan wisely for eternity. Plan to be faithful and trustworthy even in the small things. Plan to be loyal to only one Master, our Lord God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the reminder the parable of the shrewd servant of the depths of the truth of the word of God sometimes we all need to have a wake up call to begin to plan but we hold so tightly to our present loves in our present enjoyment that we forget that sometimes we need to make a sacrifice to plan for the eternal, a loss now for a gain that is forever. May the congregation this morning plan wisely for eternity. May each be found faithful until the day we see you, not worried about the task Or what is accomplished, but exemplifying Christ's likeness through our faithfulness in the tasks you've called us to do. And may we choose today, without reservation, without condition, to serve you loyally until the day we see you. We love you, Lord. And so we hope we will respond appropriately. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.